um, welcome everybody to the after lunch session. We're hoping to have more discussions this afternoon and to help us uh, begin to form our thoughts about questions and, and issues um, that have been raised by this morning's speakers. Um, I'd like to welcome Brenda Little, who's well known in the field of work based learning and these, this general area and has been working with mature learners as well for a long time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Anne, and thanks very much for inviting me to your uh, seminar today. A little bit in the brackets, formerly Cherry of the Open University, which many of you, or some of you may know, um, the university decided to close down in July 2011. However, um, it doesn't um, mean I'm not still active in the area. And just a bit of background, I mean, as Anne said, I've done a lot of work in the area of work-based learning. If I think back to some of the early work that um, John Brennan and I did when Cherry was um, set up by the Open University, when it was a quality support centre. Uh, we did a big review of work-based learning in higher education, the Department for Ed- Education and Employment, as it was called then. And that was 1996, so some time ago. <clears throat> I was also involved in the mid-2000s, 2005, in the uh, National Coordination Team for Enhancing Student Employability, ESECT, which was a Hefke-funded activity, which was directed by Peter Knight, um, who at the time was working with the Open University. Um, and Cherry also did work for Hefke more recently, uh, a study to inform their employer engagement strategy, which again focused in on work-based learning or workplace learning. So there's a kind of a bit of a track record there of working in the area, and also have done work on uh, foundation degrees as well, which are a particular curriculum device of combining academic and work-based learning. And uh, Cherry did some work from foundation degree forward a few years ago on that. So. What I think I'm trying to do in this presentation, um, yes, uh, trying to um, make some connections with what we've heard before, but of course I've only just heard that as well, so I'm hoping that what I've put together will actually make some of those connections and will come to uh, raise some issues for discussion uh, later this afternoon. Um, Just to say, yes, I've been... (laughs) been around for a little while, and when I was looking back for some notes to um, put together this presentation, I came across a paper um, and, a, and a title for something. I did a seminar at the OU in October 1996, and it was called Higher Education and Work-Based Learning. Uh, so, you know, possibly we're in different times now, and since that time there have been a lot of work-based learning-focused initiatives Um, but we're arguably moving into a new phase of higher education in the UK, well, in England particularly. Uh, I think I would have to say places like Scotland seem to be a little bit different. However, um, let's see where we get to on this one. Um. Oh, didn't like that. So um, what I'm going to do in the presentation, just put out some definitions, because we are talking about employability, but I guess we want to think a little bit more about what that might actually mean. Then there's going to be some reflections of where we've been, both in policy and practice terms, and then finally where we might be heading, and that's where hopefully we'll be able to pose some questions, which later on this afternoon we'll be able to discuss in slightly smaller groups. Um, Definitions of employability. Uh, Anne and colleagues, very helpfully in their Higher Education Academy uh, report of last year, Pedagogy for employability uh, came up with some definitions and kind of reviewed some of the other ones. I've just put a few up here. Uh, Here was a CBI in 2009. Skills, knowledge and attitudes that graduates can take 
to the workplace, and sort of emphasise that word a little bit. Um, it's not just a UK phenomenon. Bologna, Europe is talking about employability. Here was something that the Bologna follow-up working group, again in 2009, came up with. Ability to gain employment, maintain employment, and be able to move around within labour markets. Focus on employment there. And uh, I just end up there with, you know, the ESECT sort of generic definition, which Anne and colleagues' um, publication sort of expanded. Uh, a set of achievements, skills, understandings, personal attributes that make graduates more likely to gain employment and be successful in their chosen occupation, which benefits themselves, workforce, community, and the economy. Uh, I guess some of you are quite familiar with those various um, definitions that have been around in the literature for quite some while. But my question looking at some of those is, <clears throat> is that discourse of employability really biased towards uh, new graduate entrants to the labour market? The CBI one particularly talked about skills being taken into the labour market. Um, and so the question is, what about those already in the workplace? Uh, we'll come back to this a little bit. Um, and the further question, most recently, some of the initiatives, especially funded by the English uh, Funding Council, HEFKE, have been looking at an increased emphasis on the higher education sector's involvement in workforce development. And do those initiatives actually help or hinder discussions about employability? Just thinking of one particular initiative that's been going around. When I looked at the QIA website, for example, um, there's a discourse there based on notions of skills. Employability website actually talks about skills for employability. Um, but again, if you look further into the QAA website, we get guidelines on enterprise, which talks about skills, attributes and behaviours. And I think in one of the presentations earlier this morning, um, there was a sense of... Uh, employability and enterprising behaviours and being able to cope with change and looking for ways of adapting to change. So there are some links in there. And uh, the HEA publication did tease out distinctions, again, between employment as a graduate outcome and the issue of a pedagogy for employability relating to teaching and learning of a wide range of knowledge, skills and attributes to support continued learning and career development. Anne might remember those words. It's on page seven, as I just checked last night. And again, that word career, I don't know. We've heard uh, just before lunch about accidental trajectories and, and maybe not defined and rationally uh, planned and decided upon careers as such. So does that word career actually send us thinking in certain directions rather than others when we're thinking about employability? A, a, a paper that Anne forwarded to me recently um, was produced by a team at Leeds University, Raphael Hallett and others, and it was work done under a University of Leeds teaching fellowship and it was about the rhetoric of employability, bridging the university employer divide. And what they'd done was look at a lot of curriculum statements, I think mainly in the arts faculty at Leeds, and compared these to the sort of statements that one might find on major employers' websites, and particularly the websites referring to recruitment of new talent coming in. And what they think they found was actually, although... Employers might be talking about um, generic skills. One of their insights came up that 
In fact, employers define their ideal employee as much in terms of character and behaviour as generic employability skills. And they also note that, perhaps not surprisingly, employer language was more emotive and intimate and personalised, whereas the academic language was more neutral and depersonalised and rarely, rarely gave weight to character of student, their personality and behaviour. And yet I think what we've seen uh, in the presentation just before lunch about individuals' learning trajectories and narratives is very much coming through about students' personalities and their behaviours. And in fact, one of the slides, as I remember, was headed up uh, resilience and reflexivity, which I think is you know, about behaviours and personalities and not necessarily linking into specific skills as such. So that's just some ideas being thrown out about um, what we can read into definitions of employability and where that might be sending us in ways of thinking about employability. The second uh, point I really just want to hone in on is mature students. Now, who are they? I think in the first presentation, um, there was an age break uh, being shown in some of the statistics, and it was sort of 25 plus, if if I recall. Um, I was looking at some work that Million Plus, one of the university think tank groups, had put out um, in December 2012, just before the summer, I think it was. And Million Plus had worked with the NUS uh, to reanalyse a lot of the HESA data on students and the undergraduate student population, and had also done some further work on case studies of individual students. Uh, The report's called Never Too Late to Learn. And in that report, there were a lot of statistics produced comparing mature students with young undergraduates. uh, And they were, by definition, those aged under 21 on entry to H-year. So some of the things that this Million Plus report came out with, mature students more likely to have non-traditional entry qualifications. And again, as we've seen this morning, that is a theme that kind of comes through again and again. They're not the traditional student as such. Mature students more likely to study part-time and more likely to be juggling study and other responsibilities, family, work, for example. And again, this chimes very well with some of the uh, trajectories and narratives that we were hearing about this morning. An interesting thing I I found in the Million Plus, well, there were a lot of interesting things in the report, but a particular one I want to just mention here. Um, When they were looking at this category as they um, categorised the mature undergraduates, so age 21 plus on entry, let's say, Um, they actually found the majority of them were enrolled at full-time first degrees and they represented about 20% of all full-time first degree undergraduates. So mature is not necessarily synonymous with part-time study. Uh, But the majority of the mature undergraduates were uh, working while studying and the majority of part-time mature undergraduates were also combining study with working. And I I think that does chime with our a kind of notions of mature students being those with other commitments outside of studying, be they family responsibilities, work responsibilities, or a combination of all of those things. Then we go on to this area of work-based learning. Because we're talking about work-based learning opportunities for mature students in this seminar. The place of workplace learning. It's nothing new in this. Uh, The workplace is a site of learning. Uh, There's a long history, 
especially in terms of sandwich education, for example, which dates from about the 1950s onwards. And debates about lifelong learning and the role of experiential learning in general and learning for experience of work in particular has been around for a very long time. Um, our own review of work-based learning in HE, 1996, drew attention to this. It, at the time, drew on a whole raft of uh, development projects which the Department of Employment Education had funded for many years, two or three waves of funded development projects, all looking at the area of work-based learning. Uh, so again, it's, it's not a new field, but the context has maybe changed and the, the ground rules are shifting uh, as we talk, in a sense, on all of this. And I guess this area of work-based learning, in some ways, was given renewed emphasis with the introduction of foundation degrees in 2000 and debates about employability in the mid-2000s and, as I say, continuing debates about employer or employee responsive provision. Uh, driven by successive governments' aspirations for greater linkages between higher education and business and employers. That, that aspiration for greater linkages, um, to some extent, one can see a driver of that being additional streams of funding coming into higher education. So whether the educational case for greater linkages between employers and HE, possibly through work-based learning, was made as strongly as maybe the uh, financial case is possibly a moot point. But there have been definitely drivers seeking greater linkages between HE and employers and the place of workplace learning within that over, over many years now. What does work-based learning do for the nature of the HE curriculum? <clears throat> uh, many people have written about the challenges um, that work-based learning poses for a traditional um, HE curriculum and higher education's traditional role of being producer of knowledge and transmitting that knowledge to learners through teaching and possibly then not recognising the workplace or work-based knowledge that individuals in the workplace already have at their disposal. And again, uh, this morning we were hearing of, and, and some of the questions that came out was uh, not treating learners as kind of a blank sheets coming to learning for the first time. And many, many learners, mature students in particular, have learning histories, they have life histories, they have experiences of work on which they may have reflected. Uh, they bring to the party an awful lot of knowledge and skills and attributes. Um, so the notion of HE kind of placing all of this onto uh, a blank sheet, which is the learner, is... Uh, can challenge academics' views of what higher education is actually all about. The little quote in there is from Anita Walsh, 2008, who was writing in a, I think it was an HEA publication, about work-based learning. And she was coming out, uh, just read it, those engaged in work-based learning are very likely to be adults functioning, comp functioning competently in their work. And as such, they're likely to be seeking ways of researching and developing knowledge, reflecting on and evaluating situations thinking autonomously, enhancing their capabilities of dealing with complex situations. So not necessarily looking for uh, development of specific skills and new knowledge, but looking for ways for managing that knowledge, developing their own knowledge. And in a sense, that approach maybe to work-based learning in a curriculum um, does align well with other debates and theories about higher education's approaches to enabling deep approaches to learning. 
as opposed to surface approaches to learning. Deep approaches where an individual learner attempts to understand the underlying principles, ideas and concepts and interpret them in meaningful ways and possibly ways that mean things within their workplace if we're thinking of work-based learning. And more constructivist learning theories with the emphasis on the individual's thinking and their search for meaning. So in some ways work-based learning chimes very well with those debates, more general debates of teaching and learning and enhancing that. What I want to do now, <clears throat> having just sort of posed some of those issues on employability, on mature students, on work-based learning, is just to give a flavour from um, a particular study I was involved with, um, with the Learning Support Network um, in about 2006-07. We did some studies for a foundation degree forward, which uh, some of you may recall was the body set up to really develop and sustain the development of foundation degrees uh, in England and Wales, I guess, uh, and possibly Northern Ireland. not sure about that. Somebody might be able to correct me on that. Uh, I know it's some time ago, but in fact, having read quite a few recent journal articles on the experience of running foundation degrees, I think some of the findings from our study are still as um, relevant and accurate today as they were when we, when we first reported. Uh, so I think the, the findings do bear the test of time. And part of our study was to do, investigate the impact of foundation degrees on students who were currently enrolled, who had recently graduated from a foundation degree. Uh, we also interviewed these students' employers about their perceptions of foundation degrees, and part of the study also worked with a number of practitioners. The whole study involved about 20 foundation degree programs across about five different sort of sectors, and part of the study was working with practitioners uh, to gain a sense from their perspectives of the issues and barriers and enablers of foundation degree developments, which were then fed back to foundation degree forward to work on in their own uh, good practice guides. And what I want to do here is to just put up a few slides, again, students' own narratives of the things that they gained from their foundation degree studies. Um, the ones I'm going to show are particularly related to part-time students, our study did cover full-time students as well, but these ones are about the part-time students, all of whom were in work whilst they were studying. Um, and it's interesting how they express their gains in terms of their workplace practices. And we asked questions about their main gains from study. We didn't ask them about um, particular skills development, we were much more open than that. We were trying not to preempt this kind of responses we would get. We didn't want to prescribe or proscribe their responses. It was much more what were the main gains from your study uh, and what, were the, so what did you gain least? But I'm going to talk about gains here. And most of the interviews were done on a one-to-one -one basis, telephone interviews, but there were some focus group discussions with students as well. Uh, so... The, the thing coming through time and time again, no surprise, many, many studies over the years on part-time students in particular come out with students say they gain confidence. And it was interesting, actually, um, you know, reflecting back on what we heard from the, the, the Scottish case this morning of 
I think in terms of reflecting on their own skills, I think you're saying that the mature students were kind of more confident about their skills than they did the younger students. But here we have mature students talking about the confidence they gained by dint of doing this study, and particularly talking about foundation degrees, really, because, as I say, by design, uh, they were designed to integrate academic and work-based learning. Now, we may discuss what that actually meant in practice, but nevertheless, there was an intention that students learned through workplace or work-based activities as part of their programme of study. When we looked at some of the interview transcripts, this confidence, we could see when we were analysing it, came out mainly in relation to communication and solving problems and individuals' personal development and self-esteem. Those are the kind of themes that came out time and time again. <clears throat> so here we go. Some, again, some narratives in a way, some reflections on their gains. The first one, I didn't have an academic background. And again, you know, this chimes so well with a kind of characteristic of mature students, part-time learners, having non-traditional entry qualifications. So this person, I didn't have an academic background. Everything I learned gave me more grounding for my workplace practices. I can pull things together, link what's happening. I can link it with theory. I've learned the vocabulary. So there was some element of kind of communication skills coming in here. But it wasn't communication skills in isolation. It was being able to communicate better because of the increase of knowledge, the increased confidence of combining theories with practice, being able to engage with the issue better, and feeling confident about speaking out. Uh, that first quote was a female graduate who'd done an FD in teaching and learning support. The second one, again, I've deliberately chosen because it is about, in a sense, communication. But we can see it's slightly different angle on it. I've de definitely learned how to speak, how to write. If you've come up through the ranks, you don't have this. Now I'm more apt to use words like perceived and hierarchy. All the top management have been to university, so in day-to-day -day meetings, you'd think they were pompous preps, the words they used, but through the FD, I can see that you need to marry up experience and the knowledge. And again, it is about confidence in speaking. We're not saying that the second interviewee, who actually, again, was a female graduate, uh, FD graduate, who'd done a bespoke business and management foundation degree and was already working in a middle management role. She's not saying she didn't know how to speak or write, but in the sense of, um, from her perspective, using words that could engage with management in, in decision-making groups, in management meetings. And that gave her the confidence to put forward her own ideas and to be seen much more as part of that grouping. So it was about um, identities, really, and how others perceived the individual learner in the workplace, as, as well as how they perceive themselves. I mean, the first one who came out with, I didn't have an academic background. I mean, we didn't probe too much what their backgrounds were, but clearly she felt in a kind of deficit mode in compared to maybe other people in that workplace. The second uh, set I just want to show... Um, this is about problem-solving, really. The first one, I got a much better understanding of logistics in the wider sense, how some of the theories can be applied to solve practical problems. I got a wider perspective, can see there's more than, there's more than one way of doing things. 
I've got the confidence to say if I think the old established way may no longer be the best option. A male foundation degree graduate who did logistics. And the confidence he's gaining, he's voicing for his own views, but it's based on increased knowledge, theoretical underpinnings, and a lookout to take in the broader view. And again, so that confidence is, yes, it is in a sense of putting forward your ideas, it is in a sense communicating, but it's based on a kind of a cluster of other things going on. The second one is, came out from a focus group of uh, all-female uh, FD students, they were, and they were doing early years education. So they're talking about <coughs> being expected to read around certain topics, learn new theories, share and reflect on their working experience with others. Gets us out of our comfort zone. We're much more reflective, that word again, reflective, bringing in wider ideas to uh, inform solutions to problems. We can bring fresh ideas, broader perspectives, even though sometimes our work suggestions aren't well received. Now that was quite an interesting bit at the end, because it tells you something about the organisational context in which they are working, in which they are learning, and again, how others perceive them, and maybe how others perceive their increasing confidence and knowledge and possibly questioning uh, working practice that have gone on for a long, well, maybe quite a long time. These people clearly were starting to become reflective practitioners, which, again, there's been an awful lot written about reflective practitioners. And perhaps that sort of throwaway line at the end was, in a sense, maybe reflecting on some of their work colleagues who maybe had lost the art of reflection. Let's just say it like that. But again, it tells you something about um, the organisational, the workplace context within which these people are learning. Uh, the final set of quotes, um, day, uh, number three. Okay, doing this study gave me the confidence to apply for and get promotion at work. I wouldn't have gone for another job. But having done presentations and things and having put forward your own opinions in group work, I had the confidence to apply. That again... Female student, um, we did seem to have a preponderance of female students in our interviews, but never mind, um, did business and management. And again, that increased confidence, realising their own voice carried some weight. They were uh, prepared to put forward their own views in group work or individually, and that, a byproduct, was the confidence to apply for a promotion within her work organisation. The final one. No one asked me to do extra things as a result of doing the FD, but we're expected to make money. So we, my department, this individual headed up a department, now do outside catering. I hadn't done this before because I thought somebody in the company would say no. But the course has given me the confidence to try something new. Don't assume somebody will say no to new ideas. So again, that confidence coming out of increased knowledge, uh, a strength of commitment to carry forward an idea. Having done business and management, this person talking with them had done business planning, had done aspects of market research, and they brought together that bundle of knowledge to put together a coherent business plan which they felt they could defend uh, in, in a work situation and carry forward into actually carrying out new activities, taking that initiative and undertaking new activities. So I don't think any of those quotes really point to particularly 
um, any specific generic employability skills per se. I think what they're showing is a much more a blend, a clustering of how people's increased knowledge, uh, ways of thinking, um, opportunities to go and look broader, read broader, read around the subject, all come together in their day jobs and somehow it gives them that confidence to take things forward, to maybe suggest changes, to adopt to new situations. I just put that particular quote up because it does seem, and this was 2003, uh, Peter Knight again and Mance York, who were some of the movers and shakers in the ESET uh, group, and they'd been writing quite a lot earlier about tuning the curriculum, tuning it to employability issues. And they'd seen employability as a blend of understanding, of skillful practices. So not skills themselves, but knowing where to use skills, in particular working pla- workplace practices, where to adopt, where to... Uh, efficacy beliefs, that legitimate self-confidence, a sense of self and being able to make change or propose new ideas... And reflectiveness. And I just felt that, in a sense, captured a lot of what I've shown in the earlier quotes from students and students' own voices of what they gained from foundation degrees. And I think what that is showing us maybe is, I hope it's showing us, that employability is is as much to do with individuals' behaviours as it is to do with skills, specific skills possibly, and particular pockets of knowledge. So, where might we be heading? In 1996, <clears throat> and I'll give you a bit of context for this when we've just looked at it, an OU colleague indicated that from an HE perspective, the major consideration in exploiting work-based learning opportunities was the extent to which learners are able to demonstrate critical awareness of their own practice, the organisational context, and the theoretical assumptions which are in operation. I found that as a response to a question to an OU colleague in preparation for my October 1996 seminar I did on higher education and work-based learning in the Open University, and that colleague is sitting in the audience today. Um, But anyway, I think we've made a lot of advances, advances in this respect in terms of tuning the curriculum that it will um, enable people to look at workplace practices, learn through those workplace practices, develop those working place practices through their learning in the workplace. But where might we in higher education now be heading? Will mature students be seeking more or less work-based learning opportunities? Uh, We had the presentation this morning in Scotland. Um, It would seem there's great demand for work-based learning opportunities in the form of internships, that particular scheme, demand outstripping supply in that sense. Will mature students be looking to build on that, do more of that? Is successful work-based learning predicated on positive employer engagement? Uh, That's, I think, quite an interesting area uh, to think about. And will such engagement be forthcoming in the future? And I just threw that one in the end, bearing in mind maybe the recent evaluation of the HEFKE Transforming Workforce Development big development programme they funded for three years, 2008 to 2011, was evaluated last year. 
Uh, and a lot of it was about, as I say, drawing in co-funding from employers and uh, a kind of sense of where HE in England particularly is heading in terms of new funding arrangements. Will some of the initiatives and developments which may have tapped into uh, work-based learning opportunities, if they were predicated on employer engagement and support in kind or in actual financial uh, contributions, will that continue in the future scenario we're going into. So those were some of the questions I sort of came up with in advance and not hearing the uh, conversations this morning. The other uh, series of questions which Anne and I had worked on prior and I think had been put around um, electronically before the seminar, but ones we just want to share with you now as well, and they have touched on them in this presentation. Is the prevailing language on employability, is it helpful or is it hindrance when it uses terms like gaining employment? It talks about career development and those issues of uh, rational planning and linear careers are or are learners much more um, accidental careers. Would a shift away from skills and towards behaviours help in considering ways of supporting employability for mature students? And the final point we put up, thinking of mature students and workplace learning, whose responsibility is it to engender opportunities for individuals to experience a range of work-related activities which might result in learning gains? Uh, in a way, that springs off a little bit from our earlier presentations this morning about maybe internships, but also the ex-description of the BAONs in youth work. And I think the um, discussion towards the end of the individuals on that programme having to find a, a, a placement opportunity or a practice opportunity different from the one they're currently working in, albeit maybe for five weeks or so. Whose responsibility is it <coughs> to find those um, other opportunities for the learners? And thinking back to one of the quotes I put up earlier about the early learning uh, foundation degree students and their comment that sometimes their suggestions for new practice or changing practice weren't always welcomed in the workplace. Some of the other comments from those students was that within their work-based learning activities, sometimes the assignments required them to access either activities and or resources within their workplace, which in their current <coughs> employed position, they did not have, have access to. And negotiating access to some of those uh, resources or activities was often a problem for the individual learning. And it's back to whose responsibility, in a way, is to try and negotiate um, access to those kind of opportunities. So on that, I'm just five minutes late, I'd like to finish. So thank you very much. And really now we want to get you to do some work. I think we've given you a huge amount of input, but we'd really like you to see if our combined experiences and expertise in the room can come up with some fruitful ways forward to think about some of these issues for, for mature students, issue of placement, issue of work-based learning, and issue of supporting employability for those students. So we've given you some flip charts on each table. You have a selection of questions. We think you might be able to get about two questions <coughs> done in the time. 
depending on how much time you want to think. But don't feel constrained by these questions. If you have another bigger question you want to address, then that's absolutely fine. But please, could I make a plea for you to do some sort of scribing, because we will take together um, our, all of the commentary and try and make some sort of summary of today's session um, to circulate afterwards. So... John, do you want and to can I also say, and this is for the, for the people online, oh, yes, <laughs> wherever sorry. you are, um, there, there's a link um, on the, um, the webpage from which you access the webcast, which will take you through to a Google Docs document, which also has these questions on it. So you can type away and we can sort of do a virtual discussion there. Which John will be leading. Yeah, I'll be doing it as well. So. <laughs> See you there. <laughs> All right. Alright, so please, if there's not very many people on your table, you might want to join another table. I think <coughs> four tables probably would be good. We're going to try and round up some of the things, and we're really hoping to move some of this agenda forward in some ways, because we feel that you know there's a lot of work being done, and um, we want to move it forward. But in order to do that, I think that the issues that people feel are important, and um, we should surface them here, because we have got a golden opportunity to feedback to the AGA, not only in the person of, of Erica, but, but also in the report that we do to follow up from this session. So, so it is really important to surface the issues that you want to address as practitioners um, in higher education institutions. So I, I think we'll, we'll try to move around the room, but if a different group wants to respond, you didn't feel that Brenda and I have got to respond, we indeed. We may not want to, but so other people might want to to respond. So do you want to, to on your table start? I don't know who's going to speak on the table. Have you agreed? Yes. 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 Thank you. 
Um, I'm sorry if you can't see. Um, so then we sort of said that there, needed, there did need to be a generic, kind of trying to pull all of this together, um, but that for an individual, you ended up with a sort of a, a personalised kind of view of employability, um, but that would depend on their situation and they would change over time as well. Does that make any sense? Can I just ask then, when you said the answer was no to two, shift away from skills towards behaviours, but here you seem to be talking about behaviours. Well, we were talking about behaviours, but we were also talking about competencies, we were talking about... Uh, what else did we have in our I think we thought the behaviours might be more in terms of an employment language. So it actually might be more of a translation of the knowledge, skills and abilities that we have used in academia. Effectively what we've done maybe in academia is we've broken down the behaviours into KSAs because that's what we need to do in order to train people up on it. Mm. But in fact in the workplace actually people are looking at it in terms of behaviours. So employability is defined by, by behaviours in the workplace and perhaps maybe KSAs. Um, so, you know, I think from some of the slides there, the anecdotal reports about what happens to the students when they get into the workplace, they're talking about how they have translated their KSAs that they've learned on their course into the behaviours in the workplace, and that's what they're being judged by, and that's what they get their self-esteem and their confidence for. Um, so we think it'd be useful, you know, uh, conceptually to think of it like that, and to use those either behaviours or KSAs to define employability depending on which context you're looking at it from. But ultimately, it may actually come down to having a personalised relationship with the individual student. And it could even come down to things like personality at the end of the day. What character, what character traits do they display? What strengths and weaknesses do they have? And then you, you need to tailor your employability approach to the individual requirements of that student and the context that they actually work in. Okay, that's really interesting, and, and lots of things to thought there. So I think that um, this table had a... You'd also worked on questions for volunteers, haven't you? So perhaps we should go to you next. Yeah, I mean, we looked at... Uh, well, first on the first one about employability, I think we could debate that forever, what the definition of it was. So um, we weren't sure that was going to take us very much further forward. In terms of the second one, certainly it's more than just skills. I mean, it certainly is behaviours, it's certainly confidence, it's certainly lots of other things as well. And uh, I suppose one of the things we did talk about is that... Um, whether it's academics or the career service, these two groups need to work together quite closely, uh, however they deliver it. And one of the areas that we thought was quite important is that no matter how good the services you provide, not all the students come forward to um, access it. And one of the areas we thought was very important was how to engage those people who are not engaged with the system in the first place. And I think there there's a, there's a great um, win situation because we're all going to be measured on these sort of employment statistics going forward for one thing and, and of course it's to the benefit of the students. Um, and maybe it's accessing those groups. And I think we saw it in terms of lack of confidence with the, uh, the youth worker um, projects there. 
that actually accessing that group that never come to anything is probably the biggest challenge we, we might have. But when you say um, the, the group that doesn't come to anything, yeah, sorry, sure. Um, I know, for example, you know, part of Anne's responsibility within the OU, as she's described, it was kind of employed, embedding employability in, in, in all the curriculum, in the curriculum uh, design and delivery aspects. So, in the sense of can you say about students who don't come to things? No, that's a good point. I mean, we did also have a good discussion about um, what are we actually teaching? Because sometimes, say, okay, write a 3,000 word report and do a presentation to get your degree. But actually, you're learning a lot of skills that you don't realise. Maybe we need to highlight more clearly, and I know some universities do this, what exactly people are learning. It's not perhaps that you're learning a bit of history or chemistry or or physics or whatever, you're actually learning some skills. So, so was the feeling on your table that um, the most important thing on this agenda for mature students would be to reach those that didn't currently use our services? Well, maybe they think they don't need them. I think what I was wondering about is something that was in, in Bart's presentation, and it had statistics in terms of who was engaging um, who's applying for the internships and there's a sort of trend, sort of low socioeconomic group on the left um, had the fewest applications and it sort of increased upwards in terms of the younger group and it was different for the mature students and I was wondering whether it would be ideally like to see that being more even would we like to see a more even spread of applications across students from different socioeconomic backgrounds or does that reflect the student population at that particular point, um, the the data has got a lot of caveats around that particular data because it's based on students' um, date um, address when they apply, which might not be their home address. So usually the most information data is on your your home address or where you come from. So it doesn't doesn't fit absolutely neatly. But yeah, I think there is an issue there for aspirations, and clearly from the conversation we have with career services. The, what opportunities people think that they will be in a position to actually apply for. And I think if it, if it applies to internships, then it probably also applies to jobs uh, more broadly and other opportunities that people think they might. And the, the, that's not for me, that's not for the likes of me. Well, why not? And what are, and so that reflection of what skills and aspirations you might, skills you have and what aspirations you would like to would like to have. And I, I think it's, it's a slightly... So yes, I think it's around that we see employability generally. Yeah. So I think they've got programs that are targeted at exactly. those people. Exactly. Yeah. The, the whole thing about constant futures and things yeah. absolutely be raising aspirations would be really interesting to look at Thank you. So um, I don't know. I didn't catch up quite with what you were happening, what's happening on your table there. Do you want to? And we've just got ten minutes, so we need to to oh, be so yes. succinct. <laughs> And that looks very sexy. <laughs> so, so it's a lovely diagram, which, do you want to kind of summarise it? Competency? I'll kick off, but if anybody else wants to pick up. You looked at the, the idea of employability and whether that was helpful. I think it's a case of employability is in the eyes of the beholder, in a sense of, you know, the judgement of an employer about what are the attributes of somebody who's employable can be quite context-specific. Uh, and, and varying, varying. We tried to unpack, unpack that a little bit. Um, we talked about 
skills, personality, disposition, skills, behaviour, like came to a point of whether those are actually um, separable. Is that what you're Sorry, that's another issue. But the, the whole idea of employability is, we saw it as highly, highly problematic because it seems to suggest that if you follow a particular recipe, if you, if you take these steps, if you do it in this way, you become more employable. When actually some of the data that we're encountering suggests certain ones in the kind of non-linear trajectories, the, the, the kind of critical and contingent nature of people's decision-making. So um, and we wonder whether, in a sense, when we're talking about employability, whether we are actually talking about students who have followed a very traditional route and haven't experienced the world of work, and that their world has largely been defined by engagement <coughs> in formal education as opposed to those that are, are in the world of work and seeking to develop their practice or their um, um, careers within that. So does somebody else want to pick up? One thing we talked, Stephen just touched on there, we talked about employability in terms of what it does, and it seems to us that it, it represents an opportunity for a dialogue between employers and people like higher education institutions about how we think about employability and movement between those two things. But it's also it, it's problematic because the way the debate is turned seems to me anyway to be all about how we design that funnel by which people go into employment from higher education, through careers guidance, into jobs. And it's not the other way around. We're not looking at the work context. And the evidence from our research seemed to suggest that what people found helpful was if they could dip their toe into various different waters and try things out and then maybe have to back out or move sideways. But that's the way they found their direction towards employment that worked for them. So it wasn't this kind of one shot where you've got a body of experts advising you and they found you the right slot. It was about slithering around and finding different things and then finding where you thought you might, you know, this works for you. Which is more like to be a career or long-term yeah. employment as opposed to yeah. more short-term. Which actually says something about the opportunities for work rather than the preparations for work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, it's quite interesting when you're saying things like what works for you. Because I think that mm -hmm. to some extent... Um, the way that the employability gender is framed is about it must work for the economy as opposed to the individual, and I think that that's you know, really important, isn't it? That we don't lose sight of who it's working for, it's the same size for it. And lastly, just to finish off with your paper, Ben, I would like to know what you're doing. We were doing a typical OU thing in that we, um, we didn't actually answer any of the questions. And the reason we did that was we started off by this observation. It was following on from Brenda's um, um, uh, presentation about, uh, and we picked up on the word confidence, and this is what these students or and doing work-based learning and gaming. But then we thought, well, actually, if you look at many uh, uh, mature students, whether at OU or not, the reason that they, why they're doing a qualification, and wouldn't they have said the same thing about having confidence at the end of having done that qualification? So we thought it wasn't just work-based learning bits, although obviously it's a lot... Um, 
perhaps more um, effective in being able to link your practice um, and having the confidence and to challenge things. But we felt that that was just a general observation that just doing a qualification, uh, I mean, it would be quite nice to do a comparison of, say, only students that are not doing work-based learning to those that do and seeing what differences, because there obviously will be differences. Yeah, I mean, just to say on that, I've just done some work with the Future Track Longitudinal Study of Part-Time Students yeah. and did a whole raft of interviews with students who had studied part-time on degrees, not foundation degrees. And the things they were coming out with in terms of their gains, they reflected it to their, now, their workplace practices, and it was about confidence. But of course, those programmes did not necessarily have, a, in design, yeah. any work-based learning. Yeah. So you're quite right. So, um, and then we went round the table to say who we were and why we were here. And it turned out that we were here for different reasons, but we all had um, an issue, a problem to solve about employability. So we were very good and then did problem solving, very good employability skill. <laughs> and how are we going to make it work? What are the different issues we had round the table? And, it, and it's picking up uh, the comments on that table over there that... Um, for some um, settings and the students, their lives are so chaotic and it's to do with deprivation again that um, they, don't, they don't see that they've got space to do any more and sort of, you know, adding in employability on top is just uh, one, one stage too far. Whereas um, uh, for another university, they've got so many wanting to do this employability unit of 100 hours uh, that they can't cope with it. And so I thought that's completely, you know, different experiences, different needs. So there are things that we recognise that you could do. The first thing is making it more explicit that you're developing employability skills. And that's already been reflected by, say, the Royal Society of Chemistry. They've done some research with employers and with new graduates that have been taken on into employment. And although the universities that, um, um, that these students studied at said that they had developed employability skills, those new employees didn't recognise that they'd actually been and done and developed those skills like communication skills. And so we thought, well, that's obviously an area of weakness that every uh, university could probably improve on, making it more explicit. So how do you actually do that as well as not um, increasing the amount of effort and work that um, an individual module team or, or a degree programme has to do? Well, you could try thinking about embedding stuff into assessment, redesigning your assessment so you, you're actually doing more than just um, testing knowledge and understanding. So, for example, in science, if we wanted to test students how students have understood a particular concept in chemistry, what you could do is not just say, you know, summarise this in a 200-word paragraph or something or, or um, uh, account. You could actually say, design... Um, think that you were actually going to present this in um, a radio interview to a particular audience and so you had to communicate something that's quite difficult in accessible language so that you're developing communication skills at the same time that you're testing their knowledge and understanding and at the same time you can make it really explicit that this is part of your employability strategy within that you're um, uh, designing the assessment. And so we've also said here you can actually use work-related scenarios and you can invite um, representatives from industry to help you. And that's in fact what we've done in our analytical science module where they've helped us develop work-related scenarios that you could use. You don't have to be in the workplace to be able to do um, those scenarios, do problem solving. You can do it as team, team working um, at a distance. 
uh, virtual teams, all sorts of things. So I think that probably assessment, uh, designing assessment is the key because then for um, the situation that you were saying with your students, that um, you know, that the thought of actually adding any more into uh, their programme, um, maybe that's the way to do it. And it's sort of forcing them into, into engaging uh, whether they like it or not. John, do you want to add anything from any of our online comments? We've we've had lots of people viewing, but they're a bit shy. (laughs) (laughs) Filling in the document. So, um, nothing to add apart from my own comments, because I thought I'm there. You can add your own No, they aren't there. (laughs) (laughs) You're shy too. You're shy too. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. well, I'd like to thank you all very much. I mean, if anyone's got anything they want to um, contribute afterwards, please do email um, John and he'll forward it to me um, because we will write a report and, and summarise when we've got to all this video. And I hope you've all um, taken something away from the day. Thank you very much for attending. Thank you. Thank you.